I'm Damien Fowler. And I'm George Sluffo. And this is The Current. The Current is your deep dive into the future of TV, media, and data privacy, all explained in plain English. And today, we'll hear from Josh Brandau. Josh is the CMO at the Los Angeles Times. He recently took on the title, and he's tasked with growing the celebrated publications paying subscribers from 400,000 to 1 million in a world where newsprint is declining. Years before joining the Trade Desk, I was a reporter at the BBC, covering everything from 9-11 to the Michael Jackson trial. Back in the early aughts, I saw the shift to digital happen, from flip phones to iPhones to the rise of social media. Now here in 2021, the LA Times is in the midst of another digital transformation. With publications caught between subscriptions and digital ads, the LA Times is like a giant ship navigating the choppy waters of change. It's been three years, I believe, a little over three years, since we were purchased uh, along with the San Diego Union Tribune and made private. So within that three-year period, we've been doing a lot of work decoupling ourselves from the Tribune entity. So as a campaign, uh, we landed on the state of what's next after many rounds of back and forth. Uh, And it is one of those things where it immediately gained traction internally in meetings. So we knew we had something there. And then it was articulated um, from a larger perspective in terms of what we want to stand for, our pillars that we want to go after, you know, homelessness, racial justice, representation, climate change, just ways in which California was being affected pretty dramatically. So that started gaining a lot of um, traction as, as a campaign. And it allowed us also to very specifically choose a lot of arresting visuals for us to showcase. And then I think that also is a good articulation of the ability for us to build out the consumer marketing and creative services teams overall. Before that, there was no branding associated with the Los Angeles Times for quite a number of years. It was all just a a part of the larger Tribune Tronc organization. And this provided us with an opportunity to tell the larger world of who we are and what we stand for and what we're trying to pursue in terms of doing our civic duty. So really, it's uh, a story of more than a campaign. It's a story of kind of how we're restructuring ourselves as a business for the future. Totally. And and I actually, I'm like really eager to to unpack some of the stuff that you just mentioned. Uh, But I, I also want to touch on this. Your deputy managing editor, she said that, quote, we're not trying to do news of the day in the same way as news outlets that come from a national perspective. We're trying to read that. So the gravity is coming out of Southern California and expanding from that. Why are you guys necessarily going in that direction? Because when I'm hearing about the LA Times, I'm I'm hearing global, I'm hearing national, and 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 I'm also hearing like you know California, like like I'm hearing a lot of different things. Uh, my f- initial reaction is to always agree with whatever a deputy managing editor says, but I think what they were referencing there is uh, the West Coast perspective. So as the largest publisher west of the Mississippi, it's our obligation to provide context perspective um, from where we're at, right? So if we follow our our larger mission to inform, engage, and empower, um, we need to do that through a West Coast lens. Here in LA, uh, we just came out with a story about two hours ago that said uh, that Uber and Lyft drivers are functionally going on strike for the next 24 hours to protest working conditions. Uh, Their employers, Uber and Lyft, obviously were founded in California. Um, We could look at it from Tesla's point of view. We also came out with the story today 
talking about the cost of lithium mining and deep sea extraction uh, that helps power the batteries for a lot of the electric cars. Uh, you can even argue that the ban on sales of new combustion engines uh, here in California by, I think, 2035 affects the overall global marketplace. So there's just almost everywhere we turn uh, an opportunity for us to tell a story from the state of what's next, uh, both from a literal and a figurative point of view. You know, th those stories sound so money, like I want to read them, but you, you guys are also trying to get subscribers. So how do you tell the story that like, hey, we got all this great content and then convert them to subscribers? Yeah, I mean, that is, that's the, the more than million dollar question for all of us, right? So uh, I can unpack that in a lot of ways. I mean, we saw a, a ton of organic growth last year from a digital subscriber perspective, just like most of uh, the larger publishers, I think all publishers. Um, and one of the big things that we've been engaged in internally this year is, you know, a greater focus on retention because you have to show a different side of value to a lot of these people that are coming to you through, I don't know, not ideally, but, you know, through COVID fear or just needing to engage for the first time with their local publisher or platforms that uh, are engaging with them from a civic perspective. And we need to broaden that uh, relationship to, you know, get to the interest that they have outside of uh, these, hopefully, uh, you know, transitory kind of things in which they would want to have more of a transactionary relationship uh, to provide them meaning, um, whether that's, you know, entertainment, lifestyle, sports, gaming, uh, who knows what that's going to be. But we need to show them functionally uh, that we are far more than just a reporting news source for uh, what drove them to us in the first place. And I think that is... Uh, a microcosm of what we need to be doing across the board, right? So it's our job to provide uh, the largest possible audience with ways to engage with us that are the most meaningful. And if they want to engage with us from an audio perspective only, we should be providing them with that uh, product. If they just want to talk to us in chat, we should be providing them with that product. If they only want to go to events physically, when that happens here in LA, uh, we should absolutely be providing them with that product. So I think it's a multiverse, if you will, or a multitude of different ways in which we need to uh, keep encouraging um, potential subscribers and you know current subscribers to reach out to us in different ways than we thought about in the past. You know, the East Coast, the New York Times, the Washington Post carry a lot of prestige and a lot of weight. They influence the conversation. Are you trying in some ways to counterbalance that, like a West Coast perspective, um, in terms of the branding and in terms of where you're positioning the paper. And on, on that point, are you trying to take some of those readers uh, across the country or globally even with you? I think what we're finding is that everyone's got a lane in which they're very talented. I think we're, we're very good at what we're doing from a political standpoint in DC, uh, but we're not gonna break every story. Uh, we just don't have you know the manpower there that uh, the Washington Post has. We're not at the scale of the New York Times where they cover a lot of stuff from a global perspective. So I think if we want to protect some sort of way in which we're adding value that uh, the competitive set, if you want to even call them that, uh, it would be geographically based in the sense that, you know, we're close to Silicon Valley, to Asia and China. We're looking at um, what's happening in South America and parts of Canada. So Absolutely, that's something that we consider when we're creating stories, and we think that's a differentiation, but it's really more of the tentpoles of what we think are truly impacting California first, which 
that's the value we're trying to add to those who don't live, you know, here. I'm going to slightly shift gears here and uh, talk about something you touched on earlier, which is audio and and meeting the consumers with audio. And uh, for the listeners who don't know, one of the ways the New York Times was able to grow its subscriber base to what it is today, which is, um, I think they're getting a billion or more than a billion in revenue from subscribers now, was through the daily podcast. And and basically the idea there is, is that the daily podcast, it's free, people listen to it, and it's basically a funnel to get them to subscribe. Uh, you guys told Neiman Lab that like, hey, we know we're late to the game. You guys are launching uh, a podcast called The Times. Could you tell us about it and and, and how critical podcasts have become when it comes to driving subscriber growth. I mean, I'm just thinking about a billion dollars right now. But yeah, our job is to meet you in a way that best suits your preferences. And that we're, we're definitely seeing and have seen over the last two years, but really the uptick last year uh, in engagement from an audio perspective. And I look at that in a few ways. So the first would be, why wouldn't we augment a lot of the coverage that we're doing with uh, more audio content. We have a lot of it. Uh, we should package it in ways in which are meaningful to current potential subscribers. It's also, I, I think, very attractive when we look at uh, the daily uh, aspect of the times, which is always easy for me to say because they're both so ridiculously named uh, in some respects. But um, I mean, that's a hard thing to stand up, right? So you need to find stories that are compelling, you need to have a perspective. And I think we've done a very good job of having a West Coast perspective on a lot of these stories uh, that you wouldn't hear with the diversity of voices that aren't necessarily coming from other daily podcasts. And then that allows me also to look at, um, you know, larger narrative podcasts that we do, the investigative stuff. Um, We certainly have had some success there in the past with the Dirty Johns and the Frank Carsons of the world. Uh, And then of course, branded content podcasts. You guys want to grow your subscribers from 400K to a million. And obviously you guys are using the podcast to drive subscriptions as well as like downloads to the actual show to build that sort of engagement. But like when you're looking at the podcast, like what are the KPIs in terms of measuring success? Like just beyond the subscriptions, what else are you guys looking at in that arena? One thing that really makes me excited is that if you think about audio and you think about our actual core product, which is pretty much a continuously updated content machine on, you know, that's printed, that's the word. Uh, What you have there is potential to convert a lot of that to Audible. So you're unlocking, you know, a vast trove of content that's already being created in a new way. So that's ways in which you can engage with uh, prospective users, current subscribers, other avenues for advertisers to interact with us and interact with our subscribers. Uh, and potentially, you know, the creation of bundles for new subscription channels for us and new partnerships with, you know, the Spotify's of the world. So there's a ton of ways in which I think we should be unlocking Audible for the future, which allows us to generate subscribers in a new way and also uh, monetization strategies from an advertiser perspective. And again, to get back to it, to, to listen to our current subscribers and make sure that our product roadmap reflects what they want. I, I love content machine and and I see what you're saying, like to amplify the existing content that you guys have to a variety of different ways. Uh, very cool. Um, speaking of ads, 
we're interested in ads over here at the trade desk. So um, there's this memo that circulated last year that I read uh, about that uh, to the staff of the LA Times that said our revenue has nearly been eliminated. Uh, I mean, and a lot of newspapers faced that moment last year when ad revenue dried up. I'm just first off, I guess I want to ask you what's happened since then to ad revenue. Um, how has it bounced back? Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. That was a moment that was pretty dark. Uh, you know, it's just April, I believe, of last year that we we announced that we wanted to be very transparent internally to to, to showcase what we were seeing, but also to reinforce, uh, you know, the other side of the business, what we're seeing from a subscriber growth perspective at the same time. So, uh, you know, there's a resiliency to having more than one main bucket of money that you're trying to pull from from a revenue perspective, but I'd say through the leadership of of my boss and who leads all uh, uh, strategy and revenue for the overall California Times, we've seen a ton of really good measures uh, that have been taken over the last year that, you know, new products, new ad maps, new sales objectives uh, that have seen us aggressively bounce back from that. So it's mostly, if not all, uh, very good news this year. What are you telling Madison Avenue to attract those ad dollars? Like, like what's what's the pitch that you guys are telling them to to invest in the LA Times? Sure. Do we care about impressions or do we care about true engagement? Um, what are the KPIs we're really looking for? I think everyone has had this conversation for a very long period of time. Uh, and when I can provide you with a first party validated pool of people that is exactly who you're looking for and you know the right sub-segmentation of that, that and we're a trusted brand, I think that that's an extraordinarily compelling case to an advertiser because what you're getting from not just a, a surface level KPI, but a meaningful outcome, um, whatever that would look like for you, is pretty robust. And uh, it can be proven in, in a very clean manner. I, I think there's a lot less doors that you have to go through to get from what you've spent to what you get. What's your take on the the duopoly and their impact on publishers such as the LA Times? I mean, is there a fair balance of power here between tech platforms who publish your content and and, and you, you as a publisher? You know, is that fair? Uh, of course, it, it's not in my favor. So no, it's not fair, right? Uh, I, I think just like everyone would say, it depends on what aspect of my business do you want me you know, to be talking about. So I think that the utilization of our content without providing us with a proper revenue structure that allows um, for us to continue to make that content um, from a story perspective and do our civic duty as we believe it to be, um, that's not fair. Uh, we need to have ways in which we can be paid for that. Now, there's also the other side of that, which I believe um, is also is, is true. Uh, a lot of people want to consume their news and also whatever their interests are from a larger perspective on platforms that are outside of what I can control in my ecosystem. And I can benefit from that as well. Um, and I think I can benefit from that in a lot of new ways that we haven't considered before. So the way in which we're thinking about it is it's far more nuanced than just like, hey, you're stealing our content and you're not paying us and we're going to go out of business kind of, uh, you know, headline as, as it should be more of, hey, how do we find ways in which we both uh, you know, stay in business and make a pretty reasonable amount of revenue from this. Just want to pull back a little bit uh, and look at where we are in the last year. We talked about that dark moment last April. And, you know, obviously the, the pandemic is still ongoing and we keep seeing upticks again in cases and, and that impacts 
everything, you know, business uh, trends. But, you know, in terms of your approach, how did the pandemic shift your marketing strategy and, and kind of make you consider what the future should be for the, for the LA Times? In many ways, we've, we've touched on this a little bit, but I think the idea that we need to have a better handle on our subscribers uh, and also just how we're serving them from an engagement standpoint was something that we doubled down on because we want to have a better understanding of how to provide them with a lot of the stuff that we're creating that they're missing because of the nature of what we do on a daily basis. You know, we're constantly, constantly refreshing new content unless you're a news fanatic, you're missing a ton of stuff. So uh, making sure that we're creating customer journeys, uh, recirculation models, all that stuff um, that show them the value of that. And then also, you know, it was very top of mind from a COVID response perspective. How do we provide you with things that uh, we've learned that you are interested in as well as what's happening from a near, if not complete state of emergency? So that that is absolutely something we've focused on. And Frankly, it was a lot easier to do that when we didn't have a lot of physical events that we had to market. So that was nice to reallocate some of those people. Uh, but really, it's just you know having a also a better understanding of uh, of those groups so that we can see the value of our consumer data go up in the future from a CPM perspective in the marketplace with advertisers. I, I just have uh, one more question on on my end. Uh, you know, with COVID. A lot of advertisers were blocking any keywords related to COVID, even if it was just like, here's 13 movies to watch during your pandemic lockdown, like blocked and, and publishers were seeing extraordinary traffic and, and that was being blocked. And uh, you mentioned the wildfires, like, are you guys seeing something similar to that? Are like advertisers staying away from that sort of coverage as it's quote unquote brand unsafe? I mean, yeah, I, I think that's always a struggle, right? When you're you're doing breaking news stories uh, or hard news stories. The soft news stories are, are, are certainly a lot easier. And we have a product that I created that allows you to just buy that if that's uh, your MO as a brand or an agency on behalf of a brand. Uh, it has been difficult from a keyword perspective. A lot of the ways in which we can do um, you know, brand safety uh, validation, that, that's contentious across a lot of different buying agencies, but also a lot of different brands use a lot of different valuation principles in terms of how they want to define this is risky or not risky. Uh, there's always the <laughs> the larger conversation, depending on the brand you are, obviously, that um, you know a person is a person regardless. So they're going to read about the wildfires that are affecting their backyard, but they're also going to read about um, you know the Dodgers winning the World Series. So if you're a platform that provides all of that to someone, uh, you want to ensure that you're keeping them engaged as much as possible that because that benefits you as an advertiser it benefits us as a publisher but yeah it's i mean it was from a monetization strategy perspective it was difficult and we had the, we learned a lot of things in terms of uh keyword targeting and you know brand safety issues yeah i, I bet it could be frustrating because uh i've heard them described numerous times as blunt instruments uh the the, the keyword blockers but you know i hear they're they're developing they have been developing, yeah, quote unquote. Yeah. Uh, yeah, machine learning is getting better, but there's still a lot of ways in which you uh, you're getting false positives. Agreed. Agreed. Just off the back of that, what's the kind of emotional relationship, as it were, the reader has with the LA Times as a brand? Hmm. I, I think it really is dependent upon you know, what we're doing for you. So uh, when I look at a lot of surveys, when I listen to a lot of our readers. 
there's a lot of different ways in which they value us. A lot of it is just, you know, I've been a print subscriber to you for 35 years. My father and mother were print subscribers, and this is my uh, connection to the larger world and to my personal community. Uh, some of them uh, far more recently is like, hey, this is uh, more coverage of what's happening from a metro lifestyle perspective and a lot of the ways in which we're going through um, larger struggles here within Los Angeles proper that you have articulated that I haven't seen other places. So we try to you know, cater to as many of those as possible. There's just so many things that we're trying to work on too. You know, if you just want to listen to us while you're working out, I think we need to have a solution for that. Uh, if you just like the music aspects of what we do, why aren't we generating something that um, provides you with just that? So I think there's also a lot of work that we can be doing and are doing in terms of actual value propositions. So we want to ensure that we're accessible to uh, all socioeconomic kind of people within our, you know, the, the market and then, you know, larger than the market. So if you're a student not making all that much money, we want to still be able to provide you with our news that matters to you. That's it for The Current. Stay tuned because next week we'll have Minjay Orms, the former CMO of Verizon-owned Visible. The most important thing for us as a brand was that we not make judgments about choices that people are making um, on our messaging or the brand side. The Current is produced by James C. Green and Kiara Powell. Greta Cohn is our executive producer. Rick Kwan is our mix engineer. Our theme is by Loving Caliber. The Trade Desk team includes Cassie Crosby, Yvonne Sikich, and Kat Vesey. The Current is a production of Transmitter Media. And remember, it's uh, a story of more than a campaign. It's a story of kind of how we're restructuring ourselves as a business for the future. I'm Damien. And I'm George. And we'll see you next time on The Current. <laughs>